And it's my privilege to be able to open uh, God's Word here you today, for you today as we continue in our journey of 1 Peter. And are you ready to talk politics today? You ready to talk politics in church? Because that's what we're going to do today. And uh, I bet I have your attention a little bit, don't I? Because all of a sudden you're thinking, oh, this is going to be interesting. What kind of trouble is Pastor Brad going to make for himself today? This could be the very last time I hear Pastor Brad preach at Bethel Church. Because of all the subjects that we can discuss and teach on political matters and how we ought to relate to the government, and they're some of the most explosive and treacherous for us to navigate. And this text today takes us to this place. And so I thank Pastor Steve for giving this passage to me, particularly this weekend. Many of us have very strong views on certain political matters. We're ardent that our opinion is correct, and we think it absolutely ludicrous that someone would uh, disagree with with what we think. So we often find it easy to agree to disagree on things like certain theological matters or practical life matters, but political matters, the role of government in our lives and in our society, sometimes our passions get a little bit crazy here. You know what I'm talking about? And well... Despite our passions, passionate or not, our text today demands we dig into the subject and specifically discuss, look at how Christians ought to relate to various institutions in our society. The text also highlights a particular tension we have, that we're not just part of this civil society, but also part of God's society, God's kingdom. As Christians, we truly are citizens between two realms. And in this passage, Peter fundamentally calls Christians to be humble and righteous citizens in the society or societies in which they live. Peter's concern in this text here is that Christians be good citizens here in our present earthly society, but also as we look forward to our heavenly one. And there's a myriad of political applications we can take from this text, but at the end of the day, the text is about really three ways that Christians ought to relate to society and function within the world that they live. And so let's begin by reading the passage. We're in 1 Peter chapter 2, looking at uh, verse 13 and following. So reading there, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, God's word says this, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now, for many of us, we don't get too excited about seeing the first ten words that are found there. Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. We bristle against this. Instinctively, we don't like this. We don't want to be subject to something. We don't like that. We like freedom. We want to be free. I want to be in control. I don't want to have to be subject to anyone or anything. We all deeply yearn to be free. This is the yearning. This yearning is the fundamental nature of the human condition. It's part of American culture. In fact, the differing views on on freedom and how freedom should be actualized is a core distinction between the political parties today. So the liberal side of the political spectrum often fights to ensure that people are free from in society are free from having moral values of society imposed upon them. So I should be free to marry whoever I want or to prefer this lifestyle that I, I want or do with my body whatever I want. And so the liberal side seeks to impose governmental restrictions to promote tolerance and secure individual moral freedoms. 
while the more conservative side of the political spectrum strives to ensure that people are free from regulations of government. Conservatives want the government to impede on their lives as little as possible, and the government can't tell me whether I should purchase health insurance or not. Now, as a business owner, the government shouldn't tell me how much I should have to pay my employees. I should be free to live however I want. I should be free to conduct business however I want. And so while the liberal side of politics strives to protect people from the tyranny of society and the tyranny of private institutions, the conservative side strives to protect people from the tyranny of government and the tyranny of public institutions. See, that they're all pursuing freedom. We all want freedom from authority, no matter what our political persuasion is. Why? Because we're all rebels at heart. This is the fundamental nature of sin, after all. We all rebel against God's law. We thumb our nose at God and we say we're going to live life our own way. And to sin is to basically usurp God's authority, to deny God's rightful place over our lives. We rebel against that. We want to be in charge of our own fate, not subject to anything. The natural man does not delight in being under authority. We are all rebels. I, Brad Lagos, am in my sin a rebel at heart. I want to be in charge. I want to be free from everything like the poet Ernest Hemingway once famously wrote. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's the condition of the natural man. But here we're told to be subject to authority. Verse 13 introduces a theme that will continue throughout the rest of the letter. In chapters 2 and following through chapters 5, we see this particular command to be subject. It's going to be repeated multiple times as Peter applies it to the workplace or to marriage or to church leaders or to God's law, to Jesus himself, who himself was subject to the Lord's authority as he died on the cross, but then was raised from the, from the grave and has ascended and now all things are subjected to him. So get used to this subject. This concept of being subject to authority is going to show up continually throughout the rest of this book. And it's going to repeatedly challenge us, all of us, who are in our sin, wicked rebels at heart. But what does this word to be subject really mean? Well, here's one way to define it. To be subject <clears throat> means that we find one's proper place under authority and we act accordingly. Find our proper place under authority and we act accordingly. So to be subject to someone or something means that we follow their leadership. We humbly submit to them. We obey the rules and the regulations before us. We don't try to buck the system or work the angles. We respectfully follow the rules and the regulations that the authorities have put upon us. We find our proper place under authority and then we act accordingly. But what authorities is Peter particularly concerned about here? He says we're to be subject, verse 13, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. Every human institution. Now, that's a broad category indeed, isn't it? Every human institution includes things like government, both local and national. It includes corporations, churches, family structures, nonprofit organizations, political groups, athletic associations, the Boy Scout troops, quilting clubs. These are all human institutions of which there are a bewildering number and variety. And the text says to be subject to every human institution. And this, at a first glance, this would be a problem. I mean, am I, am I supposed to be subject to all of these groups? Am I supposed to be subject to the president of the local Rotary Club? Or the leader of the Maryville Girl Scout unit? Of course not. You cannot and should not be subject to every human institution. Instead, we are to be subject to every authority under which we find ourselves. So if you have joined a particular organization or a club 
or a church. If you're employed by a particular business or corporation for every human institution of which you are a part, be subject to the leaders of that institution. Don't be a rebel. Don't be a usurper. Find your proper place under authority and submit accordingly. Now, we'll have more to say about other institutions in the coming weeks, but for now, Peter takes us in this text and applies it to one human institution under which we all find ourselves, the government. He says again, verse 13, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to the governor sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Peter specifically points out multiple levels of government here. The highest level is represented by his mention of the emperor. In Peter's day, this was the supreme human authority. It's akin very much in our day to the federal government, federal officials, Congress, the president. Peter also mentions the local level when he says to be subject to governors. These were more localized officials, men sent out by the highest authority who were accountable to that authority. And so for us, this is akin, perhaps, the state government, city officials. And to all these realms of government, Peter says, be subject. This is a rather shocking statement, given the condition of the government that ruled over Peter's readers. You see, the Roman government in the first century was not known of being particularly kind to Christians. This letter was written, it was written somewhere around the beginning of the reign of Emperor Nero. And if you know your church history, Nero has gone down as implementing some of the most terrible persecutions against Christians in the early church. It doesn't, at the time of the writing of this letter, it doesn't seem that that systematic persecution has yet begun. But there certainly were occasional outbursts of oppression against Christians by the government. Their Christians were frequently marginalized and mistreated by those in authority because of their faith. And yet despite this outward hostility, towards the Christians by the government, Peter still says, be subject to the governing authorities. Even if the government is bad, find your proper place under its authority and submit accordingly. So obey the law. Do what the police and the public officials tell you. Pay your full share of taxes. Just this week, it was tax day, April 15th. No doubt many of you were up late into the night, April 14th, completing your paperwork. And as you did that, did you cheat? Was there some income you failed to report? Perhaps some cash payment for a service you provided? Did you take a deduction that you didn't deserve? Did you overestimate your charitable giving? Submitting to our government means paying our taxes fully and fairly, even if you think those tax laws are corrupt and unfair. Because, listen, there are dumb laws all over the place, right? But we're still told to be subject to them. And really, I think the two areas, perhaps, where we struggle with this the most uh, frequently are with our money, paying taxes, and with our driving. Yeah, let's get real, okay? Uh, Do you follow all the traffic laws all the time? Any of you here ever get a ticket? I've gotten a ticket. Truth be told, I don't follow all the traffic laws all the time. Sometimes I think a particular traffic law is ludicrous. And in my rebellious heart, I think, that's dumb. I don't have to follow that. Like over here off of Highway 30 and Broadway in the shopping center with the old-time pottery and Portillo's and Panera Bread and the Staples. uh, There, there's this roadway that is clearly marked one way. It's marked clearly with signage, and it's right behind the Portillo's beside the Staples. And it is so frustrating, because it would be so much easier to get into that shopping center off of Highway 30 if I could just go up that one-way path. 
go right past that sign that says, do not enter. It's just a short little drive. I'm not going to hurt anybody going up that way. From my perspective, that is a dumb traffic restriction. I can't explain to you why it's there, but it is my duty as a citizen to follow it. No matter how inconvenient it might be. Or how stupid I think it is. But you know what? It's probably not stupid. There's probably someone in government who's much smarter than me, who probably has a degree in traffic science, who ordered that sign be put there because they know that it needs to be that one-way path there for traffic safety and good flow. That's why that sign is there. Now, I don't understand it because I'm not an expert on traffic safety. It's probably there for a good reason. But just because I don't see the reason, that's not a justification for me to rebel and to be subject to the traffic law that is put in place. Instead, I need to be a humble citizen and follow the law that is placed before me, even if I don't understand it or agree with it. So be subject to our government. Follow the law. Pay your taxes. Drive your car obediently. Or if you own a business, be compliant with the rules and regulations that govern you. I remember once being with a business owner who was gloating privately to me, but all the ways that he had found to work around the law, all the ways that he could fool the officials to making them think that he was in compliance with code, and in fact, he really was not. And he thought he was so clever about these things. He was so proud of his craftiness. He wanted me to be impressed. But I was not impressed. I was grieved by it because he was being a rebel. Not submitting and respecting the government authority that is in place over him. That's what God wants from his people. Just because you can break a code violation and get away with it, it doesn't mean that you're entitled to break it. Have you remodeled your home in a way that is not consistent with what the code and the law requires? I could go on and on with examples here. See, our inclination is always to rebel rather than to submit and obey. Our inclination is always to do just what we want to do, what seems right to us, rather than finding our proper place under authority, the government's authority, and acting accordingly. So we need to be humble and righteous citizens in the society in which we live. And this means in part being subject to our governing authorities. So here then is Peter's first main key instruction application for us in this text. It's this, humble and righteous citizens submit accordingly to governing authorities. Now, how do you feel about that? Is there something in your rebellious heart that doesn't like that? Something where you want to be the master of your own fate, your bank account? Something where you want to be the captain of your own soul, your automobile? You bet there is. But we are all called to be humble and righteous citizens who follow the laws of our land, no matter how inconvenient or dumb those laws might seem. But Pastor Brad, what about bad government? What about corrupt government? Are you telling me that everything the government tells me to do, I have to do it? No. I'm not. See, being subject to an authority is not the same as blind, unquestioned obedience. The command to be subject is not synonymous with the command to obey. 
It doesn't mean that you blindly follow and do everything that a particular authority asks you to do. Peter could have said, obey your governing officials, which in that case would have meant do what the government tells you to do without question. But he didn't say that. He said, be subject. And that's a big difference. We are to obey God. We are to obey God's law. We are to obey God's moral commands for our lives. Why? Because we unquestionably obey these things because they are perfect. But we are not to unquestionably obey our human authorities because they are flawed. Instead, we are to submit to them and be subject to them, which is, which is related, but it's still a different thing. So there is an inherent understanding in this text that there may be times when we don't obey our government. There may be times when we don't follow a particular law. There may even be times when we are obligated to break the law. And now you say, ah, I'm liking this now. I'm liking the sermon now. Perhaps there is room for me to act out on my rebellious heart. Perhaps there is an opportunity for me to do what I want, even if the government tells me not to. Right? Well, perhaps. But there is a dangerous, slippery slope here. And so to make this clear, let me share with you some guidelines about how we ought to obey the laws of our government. I'm calling this five principles for civil obedience. Five principles for civil obedience. And the first one is this. Obey the law, except when you're commanded to sin. See, here's the deal. God's law always trumps civil law. We are citizens in two realms. And one realm is always supreme over the other. So if civil law demands that I do something contrary to God's law, God's law should win that conflict every time. Is that in the Bible? You bet it is. Here's one example. We have, of course, the three famous Jews who disobeyed their king. And a report is given to the king by a governing official. And here's what that official says to the king. He says in Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego pay no attention to you. They do not set, serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then the king, Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. But if it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. These three Jews were commanded to worship Nebuchadnezzar as a god, and they disobeyed the king's law blatantly. Because it was a clear violation of God's law. The Ten Commandments say, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not worship any idols or false gods. And here these men were obligated to break civil law because it required them to sin and break God's law. God honored them for that. He saved their lives through that. Or another example, Hebrews chapters 11, chapter 11, verse 23. We read there, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. Here's the story of the infant Moses. When Pharaoh issued a decree that all newborn Hebrew boys be slain. Yet Moses' mother hid the child so that he would not be killed. Blatantly disobeying the governmental edict because the edict was wicked. A modern day example of this could be in China. Where there have been some, 
not many, thankfully, but some instances, we believe, of forced abortions by corrupt officials trying to keep population numbers in check. Listen, if any government tells you that you have to have an abortion, you have a moral duty to disobey that law. Never obey a a civil law that commands you to sin. God's law always trumps civil law. And our citizenry in God's kingdom always overrides our citizenry responsibilities in this one. So obey the law, except when it commands you to sin. The second point would be this. Obey the law, except if it prohibits you from practicing your faith. Now, while the first category is very uncommon, the second category here is much more common around the world. Where in some places it is illegal for Christians to gather to worship or to own and to read a Bible or to evangelize and to share their faith or to use their resources and money to support Christian efforts. All these things are vital and important if we're going to live out our faith. And if your government has laws that prohibit you from doing these things, you need to find a way around those laws. We see this principle exemplified in God's word in a famous exchange in Acts chapter 5. Whereas the early church was being established, Peter and the apostles were brought before the ruling officials. And essentially, they were told not to evangelize and tell people about Jesus. But here is Peter's response to that in Acts chapter 5, verse 27. Peter says this, The high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. See, we're citizens of this world and this society, but we are also citizens of another world, another kingdom. We are citizens of God's kingdom. And our responsibility to God trumps our responsibilities to civil leadership. So we must find ways around the law if it somehow prohibits us from practicing our faith. But if you do so, you need to be prepared to face the consequences. Be prepared to be persecuted or fined or put in jail or even murdered. Killed for your faith. Christians have a long and noble history of standing up against religious oppression and standing against unjust laws that restrained their ability to live out their faith, even if it cost them their very lives. Now, thankfully, here in the United States, I'm hard-pressed to find examples where we need to do this. We need to be careful about rationalizations here. See, See, you might say, oh, my faith requires me to provide for my family. Yes, it does. But don't then say, well, in order to provide for my family and have enough resources, I need to cheat on my taxes. Or I need to operate my business in some kind of scrupulous way. Listen, there are are other ways to provide for your family and your kids without failing to submit to the authorities. You're not really trapped in an unavoidable situation. Downsize your standard of living. Get some charitable assistance. Or you might say, you know what, my faith requires me not to help a particular person or group of persons who are pursuing a blatantly sinful lifestyle. Or perhaps they're of a religious conviction that is different from mine. They're Muslim or Hindu, and my faith requires me not to do anything that encourages that lifestyle or another religion. How does your faith really require that? Does your faith really say that you can't show kindness to sinners and to people who are lost? In fact, is it not the opposite? Doesn't your faith require you to show love to all sinners, regardless of how they live their lives or what they believe? Should the church not be known most, not for its judgmentalism, but for its love? What is more effective at advancing the gospel? 
And so be careful of rationalizations that you need not follow the law because it somehow impedes on the practice of your faith. I can honestly think of no law here in the United States that truly prohibits you from practicing your faith. Certainly not in Northwest Indiana. Now, we've come close. And I think society is trending in this way. Someday in the future, we're going to have to face these difficult situations. But just be careful and discerning here. That's point two. Point three, obey the law except when the government acknowledges that a particular law is no longer enforced. See, there's all kinds of laws that are in the books that are no longer enforced. And I love, I got some examples. I love these examples. I shared them in a sermon a little over a year ago on a related subject. But here's some real laws that are officially still uh, in place. In Salem, West Virginia, it is against the law to eat candy less than an hour and a half before church services. Or in either Denison, Texas or Bristol, Tennessee, adjusting your socks in public could land you a sentence of up to 12 months in the state penitentiary. Or just across the state line, over here in, in Michigan, women in Michigan need to get their husband's permission before changing their hairstyle. And when you are driving through the night in rural Pennsylvania, state law requires you to stop every mile and send up a rocket signal. Now, these laws are still on the books. They are still officially the law of land in these places, but they're not enforced. And notice the text here in 1 Peter. It says to be subject to human authorities or human institutions, not the law as it is written. Be subject to people or officials who enforce the law. And this is an important distinction. And it provides a lot of freedom. And so it's okay to go with the flow of traffic if it's four or five miles above the posted speed limit. Because we know that the posted speed limit is often not the speed limit which is enforced. But... Don't drive in such a way so that when you pass an officer, you slam on the brakes and your heart heart skips a beat and you start hawking your rearview mirror because you knew that that you were doing something that if you were caught, you'd be busted. That's being a rebel. And so drive in such a way so that you just never have to worry about getting a ticket. Which means that you can, in fact, exceed the posted speed limit a bit. If that is what is customarily enforced. So be subject to the laws as they are enforced. But again, be careful of rationalizing here. Just because you can get away with breaking the law doesn't mean that now you have the opportunity to do so. So even though you can do that home improvement project and not get in any kind of trouble for it, even though you're violating code, if the local inspector would not be happy with what you have done and could legally punish you for it, don't. Do it. That is being a rebel. Obey every law as it is currently enforced. And four, obey the law even if you consider it foolish or inconvenient. You and I, we're not free to pick and choose which laws to follow or not. We are all under authority and we must submit to that authority. No matter how dumb a particular law might be, no matter how corrupt or restricting or unfair a particular law might be, Because if you think that a law is dumb, consider this last point. Point five, try and influence the government to have laws that are consistent with wise and biblical standards. If some law is unfair or foolish, then work within the system here to change it. Be politically active. Support and encourage the passing of laws that conform better to biblical standards. Pursue elected office if you want. Certainly vote. Vote intelligently. Submission to the law, you see, it doesn't mean that you don't try to change it. It just means that you follow it until it is changed. No matter how foolish or inconvenient that law might be. 
So there you have it, five principles for civil obedience. Is that helpful? I hope it's helpful. I hope you sense that there is some grace and freedom here, but there is also a weightiness that we are all under authority, which we must rightly submit to. But why is all of this important? Are we just legalists here? We always have to follow all these rules. Well, Peter goes on in verse 15 and following to give some justification for why this submission to human authority is important and necessary. Let me read on in the text now. Verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, that's an interesting sentence. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. First, I want to move on to verse 16, though. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Now, notice what our identity is here. We are servants of God. We are under God's authority. We are subject to God's laws. We are servants within God's realm, God's kingdom. Yet, notice the contrast. It also says we are free. Live as people who are free. And although we are servants of God, although we are subject to God, we are also free. Free from what? Well, in Christ, we are free from the trappings of this world. In Christ, we are free from the burdens of sin and guilt. In Christ, we are free to live according to God's ways. But most of all, in Christ, we have been freed so that our primary and ultimate citizenship is not of this world. In Christ, we are made citizens of God's kingdom. We are no longer ultimately subject to this world's king. A king who is full of faults. A king who is foolish in so many ways. A king who fails in so many ways. Instead, we have been free to be servants of the world's ultimate king. Jesus, a king who is perfect, a king who does not fail, a king who is wholly just and perfectly wise. We are servants to this king, this perfect, glorious king of the entire universe. Delight in that. Yes, we're under authority, but our ultimate authority is the greatest, most perfect authority imaginable. And no matter what government we find ourselves under now, History is moving towards a more perfect government. A government that is not a democracy. A government that is not a republic. A government that is not presided over by Republicans or Democrats. Human history is all moving towards a universal monarchy. A deistic monarchy with Jesus Christ on the throne as king. That is God's perfect authority structure over society. And this will be put in place when Christ returns. So, oh, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Our government needs you. But presently, we are part of this coming kingdom. But if we're citizens of God's kingdom now, why, why then should we care about human authority? If God is our true king, why should we submit to these earthly kings? Why can't we be totally free from them? We have a better king after all. Well, notice what Peter says in verse 16. He says, don't use your freedom in Christ as a cover-up for evil. In other words, don't rationalize and say, Jesus is now my king, so now I don't have to follow the civil law. I'm now a servant of God, so I don't need to fulfill my civic duty. I'm, I'm following God's law, and that's good enough. It doesn't matter now if I follow society's law. Peter says, don't say that. Don't say your freedom in Christ gives you a pass from rightly submitting to human authority. That is evil. It's evil when I say I disregard human authority because God is my ultimate authority. 
Don't think that your citizenship in God's kingdom somehow voids your citizenry responsibilities here. In this one, it doesn't. It's Peter's point. In fact, rightly submitting to human authorities is critical for the good of the gospel. Look back at verse 15. When Peter says, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, that's a strange phrase, but here's what I think it means. Doing good here essentially means living according to God's ways and having admirable conduct within society. So it is living in right submission to the two societies in which we live, civil society and the spiritual society, which is God's kingdom. So doing good, it means that we're loving neighbors. We're respectful citizens. We're obedient Christians, good parents, generous, kind-hearted servants in our community, humble and righteous people. And look at the result of doing so. The text says we put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. In other words, good and righteous lives speak against and silence foolishness. And here's how this works. If you're a good neighbor or a friend, people notice that, don't they? When you live according to the fruit of the Spirit, for example, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, people notice that, don't they? And they respect that. But when you live according to the ways of the world, and your life is typified by anger, or slander, malice, sexual immorality, greed, covetousness, people also notice that. And they take notice of it. And they don't respect you in the same way, do they? See, good conduct builds rapport and respect and admiration. Yes, people in society, they stand in awe of larger-than-life, very talented people like Bill Gates or Tom Cruise, Michael Jordan, Miley Cyrus. But who are the people in society that individuals really admire? Martin Luther King, Jr.? Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, people who are known not so much for their talents, but for their character, character that is essentially godly, character that flowed for these individuals out of a Christian faith. See, God's righteous ways are attractive to the people around us. God's ways are inherently beautiful and they demand respect. So that when you see a person living a morally upright life, a life that is self-giving and generous and kind-hearted and loving, it silences the foolishness of this world's value system. It says we ought to live according to ambition and self-seeking. We ought to be materialistic. It also silences the foolishness of accusations made against Christianity when people say Christianity is irrelevant and a farce. A life of kindness and generosity demonstrates that Christianity is not foolish. A life of righteousness demonstrates to others that our faith is real and that our faith is attractive and noble and beautiful and wise. And so by living according to God's values and doing good, by being good citizens here in this world, but also and according to the rules of God's kingdom, we proclaim the goodness of God. And the world takes notice. And ultimately, this calls attention to the gospel. So Peter says, do good so that you silence the ignorance of foolish people. Do good so that the unfair accusations that are heaped upon Christians would be silenced. Do good so that our lives become a living, powerful testimony to the goodness of God. Do good so that... 
What Peter says immediately prior in verse 12, what happened in chapter 2, verse 12, Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. So here's the fundamental point. We're citizens of two realms. And as we do good in one realm, as we do good in this one, we advance the reign of the other. As people see our good works here, it shows them the love of Christ. It points their eyes to the gospel. So that our good works here in this kingdom produces citizens in the next. And so here then is the fundamental instruction of this text. Humble and righteous citizens, they need to submit accordingly to the governing authorities, but they also need to testify powerfully to the goodness of God. As God's servants, our lives ought to powerfully testify to the goodness of God's ways and to the gospel. We declare this as we do good. As we follow God's laws and civil laws, we have morally upright and noble lives, lives that are admirable, that people take notice. Is your life doing this? Is your life causing people to take notice of Christ? Do they see something different about you? Do they find your life admirable because of all that you do? Or are you a rebel? And people know it. If you are, they see that. And they're not probably very attracted to your life. And they're certainly, therefore, not very attracted to your faith. Instead, be a good citizen here. Follow all the laws. Be a good neighbor. Be a responsible driver. Be a kind-hearted member of society. Do that and people will find your life admirable. And they will see then that you are living according to God's ways rather than the rays of this world and your life will be a powerful testimony to the goodness of God. Is that your life? It needs to be. This is what it means to be a humble and righteous citizen of these two realms. But there's one more primary application Peter has for us. And that is this, humble and righteous citizens also honor abundantly those deserving respect and praise. Look at verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And here Peter concludes this passage with four quick commands. And notice the realms in which he mentions. He says, honor everyone. This is all of society. This is everyone in our present earthly home. And he says, love the brotherhood. This is the church. This is everybody who's part of our future spiritual home. Then fear God. Here again is, is the spiritual kingdom. This time, he's mentioning our ultimate spiritual authority, our king. Then honor the emperor. Here is the earthly realm with a focus on our highest earthly authority. And so Peter concludes by identifying both the population and the highest authority in both of these two realms of which we're a part. And notice what he says. He says of the earthly realm, we ought to honor everyone. We honor those who are in human authority. Here on earth, we ought to live lives that are honoring to people. Why? Well, because all people are made in the image of God. Even people whose lifestyle is deplorable to you, they are still made in the image of God, and thus they deserve a certain degree of honor and respect and dignity. They still deserve to be treated with the kindness and the generosity that ought to just overflow from the lives of God's people. And here on earth, also, we are... We ought to live honoring those who are in human authority over us. We shouldn't demean or berate them. We respect our elected officials. We honor the police and active military. We are kind to code enforcers and tax officials. 
We speak respectfully of people who are in high office, even if we vehemently disagree with them. I never want to hear someone from Bethel refer to a cop as a pig. Or the President of the United States as a you-know-what. Those in human authority deserve to be treated with the same kindness and generosity that just always ought to overflow from the lives of God's people. As an example, I've made a practice of this in my own life. And whenever I have an interaction with a police officer, often when I encounter them, I make a point to tell them personally, hey, thank you for the service that you provide to our community. I, I've even done that as a police officer has given me a ticket. Thank you for enforcing the laws of this land. You should have seen the look on the guy's face. He did not know what to say to that. Because so often those who enforce the laws of our land are not honored. They are scorned. But I've got no right to be mad at them. I'm the rebel, not them. They're just doing their job. They're doing what is necessary for us to have a good and wholesome society. And even though that they give me a ticket that I deserve, they still deserve my full honor, my respect, my appreciation. Yes, there's bad cops out there. There are bad people all over this world. There's bad people in high office for sure. But a few bad apples don't spoil the whole bunch. And as Christians, we speak the truth and point out the bad apples, but we always do it in love. Which ought to be the hallmark of our lives and the society in which we live and also our spiritual society here in the church. We love everybody. We love the brotherhood. We love everyone who's part of the church. And, and then we approach our ultimate authority, God, with reverent fear, which drives us to humble obedience. There's so much more I could unpack here. Unfortunately, time doesn't permit me. But what is essentially view, in view here in this last verse is this. Humble and righteous citizens honor abundantly those who are deserving respect and praise. So submit accordingly, testify powerfully, honor abundantly. That is God-honoring citizenship, both here in this world and in the world to come. So may we be humble and righteous citizens in these worlds that God has called us to be a part of. Living admirable lives in this world that people take notice of which as a consequence will draw people into the next.